Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphenates for January 2014. I am writer-critic. Hyphen, you can't fight in here. This is the war room. Lee Zachariah. And with me, as always, is... I am uh, writer-director-best picture musical or comedy, Paul Anthony Nelson. And with us this month is our very special guest... Ian Barr. I am a writer-critic-programmer-behind-the-counter dude. Hyphen at a video store, hyphen they still have those. Hyphen. <laughs> Qu- Quaalude enthusiast because of uh, t- today's uh, subject. Yes. yes. So many Quaaludes. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of a running theme of really everything we're talking about this month. Ian, thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, it's You're nicely timed because even though, I don't know, January is generally seen as a bad movie month because... Uh, in America, that's where they sort of dump the non-Oscar, non-blockbuster stuff. But in Australia, we kind of get the best stuff held over. So yeah. we've got... January's brilliant here. Yeah, January's like the American December. Yeah, we couldn't have picked a, a I don't know, a more uh, prestigious batch of films. Absolutely. Um, take The Wolf of Wall Street, the uh, Martin Scorsese film. The obvious comparison is uh, Wall Street and Goodfellas got into that machine from the fly. <laughs> and except what came out was amazing instead of terrifying. <laughs> well, it's a little bit terrifying too. Well, that too. Yeah, I've heard it described as the the third in the unofficial trilogy of mm. Goodfellas and Casino, and it definitely fits that brief. You know, three hours long, bad people being bad in hilarious and terrifying ways. I, I just love this film. I loved seeing Scorsese channel this kind of energy again. It's been. Bringing Out the Dead was the last time I can remember him bringing this kind of game to the screen. I just found it just riveting from beginning to end. Sure, you could probably slice off, you know, 20 minutes or so and it'd still be the same film, but... I agree, you could really add on 20 minutes uh, <laughs> and that would be great. I oh, Sorry, did I mishear you? You said add on, right? Yeah, 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 yeah sure. Good, yeah, good. To 200 minutes, but... No, look, I think sometimes, you know, satire is the best attack. And I think this works out that beautifully. Showing this kind of barrage of excess is just so... And and thinking of the other side. And and the fact that the the characters in the film never think of the people they're hurting. And you start to forget it as well for a while. And then you suddenly realise, oh, shit, there are people being destroyed by this kind of antic. And Mm. while they're just having their bacchanalian rights. And it's, you know, it really hits home. But I have never seen DiCaprio funnier or more loose or more alive than he has been in this film for some time. I think it's his career best performance. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. What I think is really interesting about this is that it doesn't show the consequences of what they do, but it just shows the facade, and the facade itself is ultimately just so synthetic, and it just becomes this long, yeah, this long bacchanal that's, I don't know, um, sorry, what were you going to say? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> well, that that actually, I like that idea. I like what you're saying about it being fun because it really made me think of what Danny Boyle said around the time when you know everyone was trying to make Train Spotting, and he kept, uh, sorry, not uh, Danny Boyle, um, Irvine and Welsh, and he wouldn't let anyone else make it. And Danny Boyle was the first one who came along and said, you know what? These guys are fun. If they didn't enjoy taking heroin, they wouldn't do it. We've got to show the fun side or it's dishonest. And that kind of feels like Scorsese's approach to this. Like, yes, it's horrible, but of course they're having fun or they wouldn't do it. I I feel that the whole point of it isn't that 
the crime will pay. These guys are bad. It's that we want that lifestyle. And, you know, the ending is pretty unequivocal in damning us for coveting what we've been watching for the last three hours. Mm. Yeah, studying at his feet after all of this Mm. atrocity. Um, Yeah, that's what I like about things like, and again, it's that whole thing I kind of want to get printed on a T-shirt of late, which is depiction is not endorsement. Yeah, um, yeah. It's that whole thing. It's it's the same as Goodfellas and Casino, and this and and the thing they have in common is that it's that this is why people get into the mob. This is why people get into Wall Street. This is why people do this because they there are all these riches they can benefit and 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 all this incredible um, wealth and power. And of course, so much of it is an illusion, and that you know is all taken away from these characters at the end they find out just what an illusion it is and the dark heart that is behind the whole thing and you can't trust anybody even you know but often our leads can't be trusted most of all which is something interesting mm. um with particularly this and goodfellas but you know it's easy to do the wall street version of this but i think this is a much more interesting attack um to see that you know what this this so-called thing of the american dream and there's another point i want to make too that i i think frat boy culture is such a big thing in the us now and so kind of damaging this feels like the natural extension of frat boy culture this feels like this is where the characters from the hangover or something Mm. like this is kind of where they end up you know if they're like that in college they kind of end up going out in the world and being on wall street and fucking over the financial services um system Mm. and it's it's this kind of ugly side of the so-called american dream which is just this unregulated, unleashed, unfettered machismo. And I think the film, the, the way this film depicts women is really interesting too. I think that you really, it really gives them moments that either, either show that what they need to compromise in order to succeed in this, this horribly masculine world and the discomfort they feel within it, or like the Margot Robbie character, reap the benefits for a while until they realise this shit ain't worth it. This is, this is no good. Um, and, I, yeah, I, I think this film has been incorrectly labelled as misogynistic. I think it's quite the opposite. And, I mean, it never lets us forget the, like, sheer absurdity of their lives. Like, it opens with the midget-throwing scene and then mm. the, starting, the, the, sorry, the blowing in, coke into the hooker's ass scene and then the helicopter crash scene. And these, like, those events just taint the thrills that you're going to live over the course mm. of the duration. The Quaalude scene. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is Amazing. kind of what the centerpiece. I won't reveal too much, but the, the, like, the physical comedy performed by Leonardo DiCaprio and Jonah Hill, but particularly DiCaprio in that moment, mm. is next level stuff. So I feel we're kind of, we'll probably talk about this when we, if someone ever picks Charlie Kaufman or Michelle Gondry or Spike Jones to on the show, I want to go into this in more detail, but I feel like they're sort of this triumvirate who have sort of grown up together sort of in the filmmaking world and now sort of forking off to do their own things. And Kaufman and Gondry made Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And this is, I feel like her is Spike Jones's response to that. This idea of using, I guess, technology to inoculate us against like natural highs and lows and the human condition and all that and how we're kind of using all these new gadgets and so on we have in our lives to sort of I know, flatten out our experience. And uh, that was my big takeaway from her. Well, one of my big takeaways from her, because I, I love this film. I, I take it from your, I don't want to you know, preempt your responses too much, but from you know, stalking you guys online, I can tell that you guys weren't as into it as I was. 
Oh no, I, I was definitely into it. Um, oh, yeah. I, I just I, I had I had a few reservations, and it's one of those films where I've been more interested in hearing the kind of negative comments towards it than the positive ones. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess that's true of most films I really like, but uh, yeah, no, I, I did like it. I saw it twice, and I found that the second time I saw it, the third act of it felt a little draggy. I don't know. It just it feels like once it hits that surrogate sex scene, which is just amazing. I don't know. It just calls into question all the projections that the Joaquin Phoenix character is put into this the Samantha his operating system. I think that's amazing. But to me, it just felt like a momentary hiccup in their relationship, and not the thing that should have brought it to its end. That it, I don't know that I would have preferred it. But apart from that, it's a really provocative, really just poignant film. Mm. Yeah, I I thought I think its greatest strength is its ideas. Like I think it has mm. some amazing uh I and as you say provocative ideas on 20 the state of our relationships in the 21st century and as both our relationships with each other and with lovers and our relationship with technology and how often we um overindulge on one to supplant the other because you know relationships are difficult and machines aren't and mm. And so we kind of, you know, begin to become obsessed with our smartphones and computers and, you know, online identities and social media and all this sort of stuff. And the other possibly more compelling concept that the film posits is that the, um, the fact that we all evolve at a different pace mm. and often relationships die because one person is evolving at a different speed and the other person doesn't want them to become that person. They, they want them to stay mm. the person they fell in love with. Yeah. And when they, you know, want to grow in this direction, if the other person can't go with it and is still idealising that other version, then the relationship atrophies. And I think that that is a really interesting idea as well. The idea that there are only these narrow moments where we're compatible, and I think that that's why it works so well in in the fact that she's this uh, operating system who is designed for one thing and one thing only, and that's to have a relationship with you, which sort of strips away all the other stuff to focus on this one... A concept like it's it's I think it's disarmingly uh, focused on this idea of this sort of one to one idea, and I sort of I, I have to admit I thought I knew where it was going to go. I thought I knew how the whole thing would play out. I, I felt there are certain inevitabilities to a story like this, and that's fine. And I and I felt I knew the roadmap of the entire film, and it completely took me by surprise. Is why I was so uh, taken by the ending because. It didn't do what I felt it was going to do, mm. but it still felt inevitable. Yeah, mm. yeah. It, it definitely closes in a nice place. I will say, however, though, I did have some misgivings. It's beautifully made. The actors are fantastic. There is a point where you're kind of watching, like, an annoying couple going, I love you more. No, I love you more. I love the way you said that. No, I love the way you said that. No, I love you. Shmoopy, shmoopy, shmoop for two hours and drives you crazy. It's like, uh, I know Paul, this Paul ha- depiction is not endorsement. <laughs> <laughs> you put my words in the story. Um, I think this film strengthens ideas. I think it drowns them in syrup and sentimentality, which is a bit of a shame. I mean, but, but I've, I've also heard that on second viewing that doesn't necessarily feel like the case. It may be that that is actually a ploy to undercut the whole thing. Yeah, I think the sentimentality of it's really interesting. It kind of reminds me of Spielberg's AI, which is a film I know a lot of people don't like. 
but mm. that's a film where the sentimentality is always undercut by the actual fact of what is being sentimentalized, I guess, which is in the case of AI, the, the fact that the character is a robot and the fact of her is the, that she's not real. And that, that's why I think the sentimentality is really productive and not just supposed to be taken at face value. Mm. Yeah, perhaps. I I get that feeling. Like sometimes I do get that feeling, though, that it's written from a you know a lonely guy's perspective. Which that sort of sentimentality is very refreshing and very kind of like that's kind of what he needs at that moment. But for an audience, it just like nails down a blackboard. The other thing is that I just there were (laughs) moments in the relationship I just couldn't believe. I, I was just kind of like, yeah, look, I know there are people out there that you know get married to ferris wheels and things like that i've seen mm. documentaries but th- I, I just couldn't like the sex scene i couldn't swallow and there are a few other moments and it's like i i don't know i would have liked i don't know something a little more mm. somebody mentioned a scene it's like well, uh perhaps they you know what if, what if they just shown joaquin phoenix you know jerking off by himself you know mm. <laughs> and it's almost like i would believe that version the version that exists now, it's like, I, I just couldn't. And that's the thing. I, I, I couldn't swallow a lot of the... Did you mean suddenly a cut to where we can't hear what, what she's saying on the earpiece? Perhaps, yeah. Distilling it to what it actually is rather than trying to... I don't know. I just couldn't I, believe I feel like he was trying to suck us into their relationship and it would have been such a hard job to do. Oh, definitely. To do that yeah. would, have, would have sort of worked against that, maybe? Maybe, yeah. I don't know if it was entirely successful from, from my point of view. I, I think it's kind of a miracle that it works as well as it does. So, mm. I, I, and, and I think that's why it, 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 it was it was more of a, a revelation for me on first viewing than on second viewing because once the kind of wow this actually works as like a dramatic conceit, that sort of wore off. Um, mm. I don't know. I've heard about a hundred different interpretations of what Inside Lewin Davis is about, and I'm yet to see one that I disagree with. Uh, I think that is a sign of uh, just how good the film is that it can sort of it can draw so many different ideas out. I, I think to me the the with this and the series man the Coen brothers have they've become really exciting for me because when they deal with characters who lives are in a sort of state of indeterminacy, I, I, well, I guess the Big Lebowski too, but. Um, when they when they wed that kind of filmmaking precision to characters who are drifters or nomads or whatever, I think that's what mm. I don't know. They're entering a really interesting phase. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. This this film has come to mean uh, a lot to me, and part of me is still working out why. All I know is I I, I was the I've seen it twice now. The first time I saw it. It moved me almost by surprise. He's singing a song towards the end, and all of a sudden I felt myself welling up, and I didn't even know why. You're dead right with the word precision, and the Coen Brothers filmmaking precision by this point is just almost unsurpassed. Like, there's mm. so few filmmakers who tell a story as sublimely as these guys do. And I think one of the things that I, I can relate to, I think it's one of the best films about the psychology of an artist I've ever seen. That. There's the, like, I hear a lot of people referring to him as a jerk and a loser and an arsehole, and I, like, I, I get really kind of offended by that. I'm like, I understand him. And it's like, I understand his lack of patience because his career isn't going anywhere, and he's a talented guy, and it's just not, he's, he's not, what he's doing is not what the public wants, and that's not necessarily his fault. But he has been unsuccessful for a period of time now, and he's 
the the line between uh, integrity and obstinance has begun to blur for Lewin, and that's a scary time, you know. Mm-hmm. And and I, I just find it such a evocative, as well as it's almost ghostly as well, like because it, it, it's a period that's in transition, you know. Like folk didn't hang around for a long time. It's you know this time in 1961, Dylan's about to come along and blow it all up. And the way the film's shot in this kind of misty type way, it's almost kind of spectral. Um, I love mm. that about it as well. It's so melancholy. Which, re- which, which really reaches its apex in that Chicago trip, uh, road trip scene. Oh, yeah. God, which, yeah. which, which, which uh, I've seen the film twice, and that was actually the, kind of the part where I lost interest on the first viewing, and then on the second viewing, it was the absolute highlight of it. So, <laughs> yeah. there you go. Yeah, absolutely. It's just this so it's such a virtuosic work. Like there's so much going on. I mean the songs are great. Um it Oh depicts... my god, the music. I've been I've been yes. unable to stop I mean I saw this film months ago and I've been unable to stop singing Please Mr. Kennedy. Like on, on a daily basis. <laughs> I just can't I'll, stop. Yeah, I'll just have like outer space like repeating in my head. Outer certain intervals. Spurs. Space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, for me, I'd be playing Lewin stuff all the time. But there's, yeah, it's just such a, there's such a like sad, heavy, melancholy soul to this film that I, it's my favorite film of probably the last two or three years. I was just blown wow. away by it. I, yeah. yeah, it's definitely up there for me. One of the things I really liked about the characterization of Lewin is uh, just how combatively he uses he uses his art. Uh, I mean, when he's in the company of others, like he's at one point just saying how he thinks it's square to move to the suburbs and make a living off it. And then the next moment he's saying that he uses it for exactly the opposite reason. And yeah, but you're right. There's a million different ways to read this. As you know, what does the cat mean? I mean, there is a mm. pointed line early in the film that's played as comedy. He's on the phone and you hear he's going, Lewin has the cat. And the person reads back to him. So Lewin is the cat. And it's like, wait a minute, yeah. what do you mean by that? <laughs> They're really playful about their metaphors as well. Yeah. In, in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. No, I love it. And another, another critically acclaimed film from last year that's, uh, that's just reached our shores, 12 Years a Slave, the uh, film from uh, Steve McQueen who made Hunger and Shame, about the, uh, it's Solomon Northup, I think, the, uh, the life story of this free man who was sold into slavery. Uh, and I... Good Lord, has there ever been a, sl- a film about slavery this intense? I, I, I found this, something so riveting about this, and I want to talk about one moment, it's such a trivial moment, hmm. but uh, th- there's a bit where uh, Solomon Northup, played by Chiwetel Ejiofor, is running away from his owner, who's played by uh, Michael Fassbender, and his owner wants to kill him, he's got a knife, and he wants to kill him, and he can kill him, because he's pissed off, and, and uh, there's going to be no retribution for it. And... He's sort of talking to his owner, trying to calm him down as he's being chased by him. And it's the method of the chase that gets him out of danger. Fassbender slips over, he can't catch him. He becomes visibly less angry as the chase goes on. And, and it's sort of that that calms down the situation. So some sort of recognisably dramatic moment where someone says the right thing and the music swells. And there's something so trivial and tactile about that moment that feels like real life. You know, real life is trivial and tactile. And things change because of moments that just seem uh, inconsequential. And I think the fact that the film is built on moments like that is what makes it uh, such a triumph. You know, it's so understated and so affecting. And 
Um, I just find McQueen so interesting. Well, yeah, th- that moment is almost absurd. Like, there's mm. that point there, like, they're falling over, they're around a tree. It's like, it's it, like in, a, in any other film, it would be comedic. Mm. It's a really, yeah, you're right, it's a really kind of real strange moment. Look, I mean, it is bracing. It is, I found it kind of numbing, to be honest. Like, I kind of got to the end of it, and I didn't, I couldn't get that emotional catharsis at the end of the film uh, because I was just so numbed by everything that had happened. Mm. Um, now, that, this film could have easily, but by the same token, it could have easily been a catalogue of horrors. It could have been a Snowtown-style movie. It was just horror, 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 horror. Mm. But I think the most interesting aspect of the film, and this is take nothing away from Chiwetel Legiofor or Lupita Nyong'o, uh, who plays Patsy, they're all fantastic. The cast in this film are one of the best things about it, I think. Mm. But I think that one of the most interesting things about the story, and it's possibly from Northup's um, observations, is I think it, the way it portrays its white characters. Because uh, I think the film works best as an examination of how these horror, disgusting, dehumanising system institutions are um, perpetuated. Mm. Like through, you know, it's not just because racism. You know, mm. it's like for some people, it, like for everyone it's fear, but for some people it's power, for some people it's debt, for some people it's status. For mm. some, like it's something different for everybody. The insidiousness of the good slave owner character that that we would refer to one of the characters as the good slave owner <laughs> yeah. just sort of shows how what we, who we would recognise as good and bad people they all perpetuated this. Yes, and and it, and it yeah. shows how and why, and that's that's what I felt most riveting about this film. Mm. And I think it's really smart of McQueen and John Ridley, and you know possibly possibly from Northup's source material again to nail that. And I think that's what really sets this film apart. And stops it from just being a catalogue of horror, which it kind of is as well. Mm. But um, but that perspective is is what really elevates it. I've kind of thought the film was powerful in spite of Steve McQueen's approach to the material. I just didn't think okay. the distancing, I, I, the the sort of semi-distanced approach to it, really illuminated the drama of it. I, th- I think the hanging scene mm. is probably the exception for me. That was the scene I thought that really drove home the idea that it was apathy that also sustained slavery as an institution. Yeah, so effective. Shame no comedies came out in January. This is a bit of a dreary <laughs> note to end on. Anyone see Freebirds? That's a CGI turkey. Jack thing? Ryan, Wolf, Shadow Recruit. Wolf of Wall Street was funny. Yeah, that's right. Reminded us how to laugh. Steve Madden. <laughs> <laughs> So for this month, uh, we've come back to our mini hyphenate segment. Now, we've got an extremely special case here because this filmmaker is not really a mini hyphenate. Yeah, usually we pick people who have done five or fewer films because we normally like to reserve the big show for somebody who's made five five or more films. This person has made anywhere from 700 to 1,000 Yeah, 420 films films directed and possibly over 1,000 wrote, directed, produced or just overseen. Yeah, um, the word pioneer seems to come up a ridiculous amount of times, and when you hear who it is, you'll realise why. We're going to talk about Alice Guy Blachet, and any French-speaking audience out there will may stone me for that. But Alice Guy Blachet was... She's been pretty much roundly verified as the first female filmmaker. Mm. 
she was on the ground floor, like literally the Lumieres. In she worked for Leon Gourmand, mm -hmm. and the Lumiere brothers invited her and Gourmand to the, the, the screening of an, you know uh, the ladies leaving the factory. Um, you know their very first film. She was a founding employee of Gourmand Film, film Company, which is you know still a major studio in in France. For 1896 to 1906, the company's first 10 years, she was the head of production. So she's not only the first female filmmaker, she was also the first female studio chief. Mm. There, there are quite Wrap a few your head around this in there, actually, because she was also the first filmmaker to develop narrative filmmaking. Because yeah, what, at all. Yeah. Not even first woman, first filmmaker. Yeah, but, but other firsts, <laughs> she pioneered sync audio... She even made the, f the earliest film with an all-African-American cast. Like, you, you can't even get your hands around how many firsts she had. And, yes, yeah, Studio Chief. It's kind of ridiculous. Insane. <laughs> the, amount of, the amount of things this person pioneered. She worked in, uh, in France until 1906, 1907, until she got married to Herbert Blachet, who the, he was kind of the head of Gaumont's U.S. operations. And so they went to the U.S., and he left uh, Gaumont, and together they formed the Solax Company, which was the biggest pre-Hollywood mm. American film studio. So before everyone went to the West Coast and Paramount, Universal, and Fox all started, Solax was the biggest, mm. and she was, again, in charge of it, and made hundreds of films and was artistic director of the company. They were based out of Flushing, New York. They were successful enough to spend like 100 grand on new pre-production facilities, and the weird thing is that we've not really heard of her. Yeah. And that her name has kind of fallen out of the conversation and only now are people starting to rediscover her and, and realise that she exists. And I'm, I feel like talking about her here will be news to a lot of our listeners. There, there are a few reasons uh, for the fact that there are very few people have heard of her. I think one is that obviously because of the era she made films in, so many of her films are missing. There are quite a few available, and we're going to put some up. We're going to link to some on our website. So go There's about 30 on YouTube, yeah. I think, 30 and of our shorts, including her first film, The Cabbage Fairy. So, that, yeah, there are a few out there, mm. but also the fact that when Leon Gaumond uh, published The History of His Company, he didn't mention anything pre-1907, which meant that uh, her contribution was completely cut out. Um, she actually wrote to him about this, and he agreed to change the documents, but the changes were never published. So she sort of got written out in what sounds like a non-malicious way, but just completely erased from history for a while. Which is incredibly sad, because she's stupidly influential. Um, she worked for Rand William Randolph Hearst's International Film Service, because Solax disbanded after she divorced from her husband, and they kind of divvied up their assets and she went bankrupt and had to sell the company off and so she worked for Hearst for a while and, and then kind of moved back to France for a while and then never made another film um, just lectured and, and became kind of a patron I guess which is incredibly sad but yeah um, she did make some apparently she made some 22 feature films mm as well as the 400-odd shorts. Her output was staggering. But some of her stuff's really interesting. She made, she made a film called Circumstances of Feminism, which seems to have, like, it's kind of, you know, it's creaky, and it's, it was made in 1896, mm. and it's a little hard to follow at times. But basically the conceit is, has men acting like women and women acting like men? <laughs> and women pouring at men and, like, kind of forcing them to 
kiss them and make love to them and then hurrah, like two women fighting over a man in the street mm. and making the men like the woman sitting there drinking a beer as the as the men uh one's sewing and one's ironing um and then eventually at the end of the film it's this kind of thing where the men sort of rise up and wind up kind of getting tired of it and kicking the women out and having their bar to themselves again. Yeah. It's this weird kind of comment, but it's interesting that these sort of concerns were being voiced way back in 1896 by a filmmaker, no less. And when you think of the subjects for so many early cinema and that that was before so many of those films, it's just Absolutely. kind of blowing. Yeah. It's just... And I saw another film of hers called Falling, Falling Leaves, mm. which is this kind of you know, schmaltzy kind of story about a girl. But there's times when it's quite moving because it's about a girl who's suffering from consumption and Mm. somebody tells, uh, one of the doctors tells her family that with the last falling leaf, she's going to die. And so uh, this doctor finds this little girl in a yard picking up leaves because she's trying to collect as many leaves as possible so her sister will keep living. And it's a really poignant moment, but it's beautifully framed. Like, there's this shot with leaves slow... Like, the wind's blowing and leaves mm. are slowly falling from the sky. And there's this kind of front yard and her, the girl in the foreground and the guy in the background. And it's just a beautiful image. It wasn't like she was innovative in so many ways, which, of course, she had to be because she was one of the first. But not just with sync audio years and years before anyone else would try it, but uh, with special effects. Like, she tried double exposure. She ran film backwards. She was really messing with the medium before it was even established. And um, Hitchcock said she was up there with George Millay and uh, D.W. Griffiths as one of the most important pioneers of filmmaking. Wow. And there's actually... I don't know if you've seen this. There's a documentary coming out at the end of the year called Be Natural, which is uh, narrated by Jodie Foster. Which is um, a sign she used to have in her studio, apparently, that was like yes. one of her watchwords. It was Be Natural. Yeah. They just finished uh, their crowdfunding campaign, and it looks like the perfect film to sort of bring her to a, a sort of more mainstream attention. And Foster's narrating it. That's great. Yeah. I didn't yeah. know that. I think it's going to be great. Yeah, it sounds fascinating. We came across her name a few months ago and thought, my God, we've got to talk about her. Yeah, we were just doing kind of research on female filmmakers, like trying mm. to find, and all of a sudden this name came up. And it's like, first filmmaker? What? And then you read about the career and it's like, oh my God, she, Hitch is absolutely right. She's mm. as important a figure as Melies and Lumiere and, yeah. and Griffith. And staggering. And yeah, we really need to rediscover her and her career. And there's there's a site called um, that's her name, www.alicegearblushay We'll put um, the we'll links put a link up. Yep. up on the site. But yeah, alicegearblushay.com and it's written by someone who's been by uh, writing her biography for the last 20 years or something, been researching her career. And there's a lot, there's a great chronology there and breaks everything down. And like we said, there's about 30 of her films on YouTube. But yeah, you really owe it to yourselves to um, discover this lost pioneer of cinema. All right, Mr. Barr, please tell us whom have you picked for your Hellas for Hyphenates Filmmaker of the Month? I have picked uh, Mr. Albert Brooks who was born, I just found out, Mr. Albert Einstein. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Which is, which is a dad joke he... worthy of his Twitter account. <laughs> he really was yeah, born Yeah, I did Albert actually Einstein. put that together, because I know his brother was called Bob Einstein, and I knew that he changed his name to Brooks, but until you said it like that, <laughs> I didn't quite put it together. <laughs> so um, so why, why did you pick him? Why, why, is, uh, why is he your choice? I mean, when you asked me to 
be on this podcast and I looked at some of the directors that have already, already been done, I just noticed that there was kind of a lack of comedy auteurs. Mm. So it just it struck me that Brooks is probably, I don't know, not the, not the most well-known, but somebody whose filmography I'd like to investigate. And I had seen Modern Romance and Real Life prior to that, but nothing else. So I mm. went with Brooks. And, Excellent. And that's the thing. It's it's a filmography that's interesting but weirdly unexamined. One that's kind of yeah, like, I mean, I guess he's kind of, he's almost got this kind of West Coast Woody Allen thing going on, but he's only made seven features, whereas Woody's made a billion. And <laughs> as we'll see, there's some really innovative subject matter he, he, he covers in some of his films. But, yeah, for some reason it just hasn't really kind of penetrated the zeitgeist for whatever reason. But maybe, maybe because it's so LA yeah, specific, I mean, I'm not sure. You get the impression that it was his films were hard to get made, especially since his first few weren't very successful at the box office. Uh, his next three, I think, were, mm. and then the last two weren't. And it's getting harder and harder. Yeah, um, he hasn't made a feature for the last nine years. But yeah, he's uh, he hasn't made a lot. I I mean, he started with Real Life, which I, I in 1979, which I really want to say is like a foretelling of the ubiquity of reality television. But at the time, it was quite a specific oh, yeah. satire of a PBS documentary from 73 called An American Family. Well, apparently, uh, he I, I was watching the interview on the DVD, and he says that it was the Ladd family that was his sort of inspiration for it. Um, mm. or, or one of the inspirations, of course. But uh, the, it, was, it was kind of taking that idea to the logical end point that you couldn't watch these so-called reality shows or... These like you know what was what was known as a reality show back then. You couldn't watch them without watch seeing all this bulky equipment and think that these people were altering the reality yeah. of it. And so real life is sort of just taking that idea right to its very, very <laughs> hilarious end, end point. <laughs> yeah. yeah, as well as establishing his screen persona as this egotistical kind of Hollywood filmmaking guy oh, yeah. because he had he'd established his personality in a series of shorts for the first season of Saturday Night Live. Yeah. Um, he made six short he was contracted to make because he was a successful comedian in the late sixties and early seventies, made a couple of albums. And then when SNL launched in seventy five, they hired him to make six short films for the first nine episodes. And in mm. those he established this this personality as this kind of this, you know, egotistical sort of Hollywood filmmaker, um, very self, self-obsessed self and self-reflexive um, type guy. And the shorts are great. The shorts are really funny. Mm, you should, they uh, are. And, and he made, what was that TV movie he made? We couldn't track it down. but um, The Famous Comedian School. Yeah, that looks which, interesting. Which weirdly screened on PBS, the same mm. network as An American Family that he's spoofing in real life. But, yeah, we couldn't find that. That's almost... Impossible to track down. The idea of him doing these sketches for Saturday Night Live is is interesting because his films really play like they're all they've all got the setup of a sketch, and he loves these setups and he loves exploring the ideas that come from there, and often without a lot of drama. Like there's a surprisingly little amount of drama in his films. There's just mm. sort of the 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 setup and then watching that that sort of all the facets of it. Yeah, yeah. And, it's and, I mean, they're really direct about what the films are about. The the titles themselves just say it all. There's, there's real life, yeah. there's modern romance, there's lost in America, there's mother, of course, mm. looking for comedy in the Muslim world. I mean... <laughs> Can't get much more direct than that. <laughs> mm. Defending your life, 
The Muse. Yeah. yeah, you're right. They're all really... They, they do what they say on the box, don't they? Yeah. With real life, I think... It, it's so amazing to me that this was a studio comedy at one point. Mm. This, would, this would be... I, I mean, if it was made today, it would be a, a, like a specialty independent subdivision. I, it's remarkably prescient. Um, mm. It's really just brave and how... Not normal, not brave. I hate the word brave to... <laughs> But it, it, it's just amazing how much he lets himself be an asshole in this film. He's just com- almost completely without redeeming facet. But that's <laughs> just what made, gives it this kind of train wreck fascination. Mm. And you can transplant that to so many reality showrunners these days yeah. and hosts, and you know, just imposing themselves on situations, and you know, it's, and changing what they're observing. And and you know, I, I love when they start comparing. <laughs> what they're doing to the family, to the Holocaust. <laughs> yeah. I, I think my favourite scene is when they show the evidence that the, the uh, Charles Grodin's character is actually changed from being a right-handed to left-handed over the course of, <laughs> <laughs> over the course of like 30 days or something. That's right, yeah. And, and he knows how to tell a joke, too. Like, there's some certain line deliveries that are brilliant. It's like, the, <laughs> there are six of these camera helmets in the world. Five <laughs> yeah. didn't work. We have four of those. <laughs> <laughs> it's just brilliant. The first dinner scene where you, where you see that camera being used by the guy who's just <laughs> maneuvering it around like this Martian. It was just amazing. It's brilliant, yeah. Yeah. I mean, watching this for a second time for the podcast, I was just, I, I was, it, the, the humor of it, like, had kind of worn off a bit, and I was just, like, really just noticing how dark, like, the dark places that it goes to. It's, <laughs> this is just it's a really amazing. fucking dark story. Mm. Yeah. Oh, I, I have to mention, the, the, one of the funniest scenes is, of course, the, the, uh, the, the, the montage of the, the family when they finally, like, <laughs> they, they finally got a bit better, and there's just this really fake happy montage it's just it's so brilliant at showing that it's altered the reality and even when they're even when they're happy it's fake it's just really great and the way he he actually announces is we know how to put together a montage and then they go into it um and but I, lo- I love the idea that he's this uh he's often described as the west coast woody allen you know he's extremely nebbish and makes films about interpersonal relationship so it's it's a bit of an easy comparison but uh his next film 1981's modern romance really does feel like his i guess annie hall mm. yeah yeah definitely. like i like all of his films to whatever extent but this is far and away his best film a comedy about jealousy i thought it'd be interesting to start the modern romance uh with uh stanley kubrick's quote yep. about mm. modern romance because he was a big fan and it's of course kind of it's not very surprising considering how unsparing modern romance is about male neuroses, but Kubrick said, this is a brilliant movie, the movie I've always wanted to make about jealousy. And of course, Kubrick would end up making Eyes Wide Shut, which is mm, yeah. interesting. To which Albert Brooks answered, the guy who made 2001 is asking me how I did something? <laughs> you didn't quite believe it. Yeah, but uh, yeah, coming back to Qualudes, uh Yes! Every segment is going to be about Qualudes because, yeah, that scene where he just takes all the Qualudes and makes a series of phone calls is one of the most amazing sequences I've ever seen. Uh, as, as writer, director, performer, he just, that's extraordinary. Calls up a girl in the Rolodex just at random and then starts talking to his parrot about how their I, names go so well together. The, the way he balances just, I mean, humor and just like complete cringy horror in that scene is just amazing when he's looking through the roller decks and looking at every individual one and saying look at all my friends that's just so so good 
Yeah. <laughs> There's so much that's so sad about this character. Like going to the sports store and just being, you know, rorted by a guy played by his brother yes. <laughs> in buying all this ridiculous sporting equipment just so he can go jogging. <laughs> <laughs> it's, but it's, you know, it's a great... And it's also a nice little look like satire of the film industry as well because he plays a film editor. He's working yeah. on a film. His assistant editor is played by Bruno Kirby and their director is played by James L. Brooks in a rare acting role. Mm. Who's terrific. He's so funny. I like how insecure and unsure of himself he is. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which is probably I, I, closer I, to the truth. I, I really like the editing scenes, not just because of how accurate they are about film editing or at least what I presume film editing was like that when you were editing on film but mm. the way that they just show how the professional I mean the personal life bleeds into the professional life and how his controlling nature is revealed in the way he just takes over his his project it's just really brilliant yeah yeah that is that's a stroke of genius the end of a lot of Albert Brooks's films they they seem to end in quite an upbeat way, and then they have print on the screen, yes, yes. which completely fast, undercuts yeah. it and just always leaves you on just the right note. Because a lot of his films yeah. are like, oh, that's a bit of a happy ending cop out, and then the writing comes up, and it's like, and this ended three months later. It's like, the, and it's all these films seem to be about people who are fooling themselves into thinking they've got happy endings. Yeah. It's such, and the yeah. text just undercuts that. Like almost every film, it's <laughs> such. He's got such a dark, cynical view of modern life that permeates almost every single one of his films. Yeah, it's absolute genius. Um, I love it. And Modern Romance has one of the best. Yeah, especially because Modern Romance just suggests it's going to be an endless cycle for him. Yeah. And what I love about like his next film, Lost in America in 85, is the fact that it's it's sort of setting up to be this whole, you know, throwback to, to the hippie generation where we're going to say goodbye to money and to, to mm. things and possessions. And we're going to go off and discover America and live a real life. And it's just like from day one, it, it's ruined. Like it's just the worst idea ever. It goes as badly as it could possibly. It almost goes so badly. I, I was wondering where the rest of the film could go. Um, but yeah, he's really... He's so cynical. I love it. And they just go I, run tail between their legs back. I, I think the thing about the thing about Lost in America is that it really reminds me of Jean-Luc Godard's idea of film as film criticism because this is completely in response to the ideals of Easy Rider. Ideally, you'd see Easy Rider on a double feature with Lost in America. Absolutely. Well, well I almost thought it was a reaction to The Big Chill. Oh, 85. Yeah, it might have been. To that whole I haven't seen The Big of... Chill, so... Yeah, that's all whole sort of, oh, we, we were once hippies and now we've all sold out, aren't we terrible, and have this fun weekend where we all get in touch with our hippie selves again. <laughs> and it sort of felt like a reaction to that. Like It was a year or two later, I think. But, yeah, as you say, Ian, the film definitely name-checks. Like, Easy Rider is his whole inspiration. Like, he keeps saying to people, just like Easy Rider, even though they're in a fucking motorhome. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Not a motorbike. <laughs> I, th I think it's worth bringing up the style of Albert Brooks's films as well, because they mm. they use he uses long takes quite a lot, and I think they're most pointedly used here because the film is like it, it starts off for the the Albert Brooks and and Julie Haggerty's character as a sort of adventure, but the fact that there's so few actual scenes and there's so few places they go, and in, in addition to that, they're all captured on this these really long takes. And it just like gives us a, this kind of hilarious like stasis to the film. That, yeah. <laughs> he, 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 he loves showing people going places like 
like driving somewhere, or yeah. if they have to walk yeah. from point A to point B, he'll show every step of that. Yeah. Walk. He's obsessed with driving. There are so many long <laughs> shots of cars just driving down roads. And doesn't he mention that in Modern Romance? He said, "I've never seen a film where somebody drives around." <laughs> <laughs> And oh, speaking of long takes, that Quaalude scene in Modern Romance, there's massive yeah, takes in that. Mm. I think it's ten minutes long or something. Yeah, where he gets up, changes the record, dances, puts it off, walks back to the sea, calls more people, gets up, does something else, just keeps going. It's And he plays it beautifully for that whole time. What's weird is, like, we've all heard of Albert Brooks. Like, everyone knows who Albert Brooks is, but his films aren't in the zeitgeist the way, I guess, a lot of his roles are. And or in the I'm way Woody surprised. Allen is. Or in the way Woody yeah. Allen's, yeah, exactly. But it's right. You think of Albert Brooks, you think of Broadcast News and Drive and Finding Nemo. Yeah, and you don't uh, think of his Out of Sight and, yes. and Hank Scorpio. And, yeah, he's, he's very much a presence in pop culture in a way that his films, for some reason, aren't. I mean, I don't think I'd even heard of Defending Your Life, which was his next film in 91, with Meryl Streep in it. I don't even heard of that until we, uh, until yeah. we started doing this. There's actually a really good quote. Um, from uh, the critic Dave Qua- Dave Care, sorry, uh, it's in, mm-hmm. uh, I was just reading his review of Lost in America in his book, uh, his like collection of film criticism. Um, mm. But he, th- it's a really good point that he makes. He says Albert Brooks belongs to another almost anti-art tradition, that of the comic filmmaker who, in pursuit of his particular vision, gradually leaves his audience behind as his obsessive explorations take him into even more dangerous territory. And then he said, then he goes on to list a few examples of this. He says, but Buster Keaton in the 30, in the 20s, sorry, uh, Frank Tashlin in the 50s, Jacques Tati in the 60s, and then he, he says Brooks fits into that tradition. Wow. And I, I, I guess that's pretty true. But um, I, I mean, you, you could add the, the Woody Allen of deconstructing Harry is definitely part of that. And same with Louis C.K. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, Defending Your Life's interesting. It's the one film I felt had quite dated to me in terms of execution. It felt, mm. and it felt like the most sentimental of his films and the most conventional. Well, I think it's, it's another example of, like, he's got a great idea and just wants to live in the world of this idea, like, you know, this, this idea that in, in the afterlife you have to construct a defence of your life to determine what happens to you next. Mm. But you kind of get to live in this purgatory, which is actually like a nice hotel resort yeah. for a while. Mm. And he just likes living in that world for a bit rather than creating a, a sense of real drama, which look, I, I do find qu- quite refreshing and enjoyable. Yeah, you're right. Not, not a lot happens, does it? Yeah, I don't know. I, I enjoyed it. And I think the film's got so many great ideas about this afterlife and the fact that it you know, approximates a nice version of the world that you came from and takes a lot of pot shots at Los Angeles, which is one of his favourite subjects. Yeah. And do you find also, too, with the exception of Mother, he always plays either a filmmaker or an advertising executive. In, he's always in a creative industry, an editor, a writer, an ad man. Um, and the interesting thing else? about his ad, the ad man thing is his brother, uh, his, his other brother Cliff, is an ad man, and oh, was okay. a long time creative director at a huge firm. So between him and his brother Bob being comedians, and his and him and Albert being a filmmaker, and his brother being a um, you know uh, an ad man, it's kind of like he's basically cycling his way through his brother's careers throughout all of, <laughs> all of his films, uh, which is an interesting kind of thing. It's like writing what you know, I guess. I think it's interesting that Defending Your Life is the first film he's made without... Well, I mean, the first film, but at that point that he had made without his co-writer... Uh, uh, sorry, what's her name? Uh, Monica, Monica Johnson. Johnson. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I think it kind of shows in the Meryl Streep character. I, I think the fact that she's written as just somebody who will laugh at his jokes, just almost kind of a manic pixie dream girl. As much yeah. as I'm mm. loath to use that term. But yeah, <laughs> I, I, I think that's kind of where the film falters. But apart from that, um, to me, it doesn't feel, it doesn't feel less personal as a, as a, as a film. The, the, the actual like trial sessions are basically just a form of therapy and, Yes. That's what's kind of yeah. interesting about it. It, it. It's what's interesting about it and why it kind of feels overlong to me is that I would have liked maybe one trial less and it could have been just been, I don't know, like a perfect tight, tight addition to the Brooks canon. Yeah. I, I Look, I agree. It is by far his longest film. Like, it's 112 mm. minutes or something. Only two of his films go over 100 minutes. But it's still very enjoyable. And like I said, it still has a lot of mm. funny digs at LA. And it, it, has one, it has one of his best lines as well, which is he's going on a rant about birthdays. He says, you were born alone, you should celebrate it. Celebrate aloneness. That's what birthdays are for. <laughs> <laughs> now, were his next two films really big hits? Because I remember, maybe it was just I happened to see his, the posters for them everywhere. But it felt like Mother in 96 and The Muse in 99 were really quite mainstream. They seemed to be everywhere. Well, they did get relatively mainstream releases. Uh, Mother is his highest grossing film, but it only grossed $19 million in the States. Like, none of his films have ever been big hits, but they were usually low budget. So Mother was his, kind of his biggest commercial hit. Defending Your Life was his second biggest commercial hit. And then they gave him quite a bit of... They gave him, like, $15 million to make The Muse, and it flopped and only grossed 11 or something. Oh. But it was quite heavily publicised. Mm. But, uh, yeah, Mother's interesting. It's, it's weird. A lot of Brooks's films aren't laugh-out-loud funny, but there's just something yeah. about the ideas within and the, <laughs> the situations that he kind of builds towards that give it its resonance. Yeah. And there's stuff in Mother that's just creepy and cringy and really great but the whole albert brooks rob morrow relationship as well and you know rob morrow being so covetous of his mother's attention and and brooks's even brooks's insistence on going through with this experiment is strange you know like yeah. I, there's times i kind of side with his mother going this is weird grown men don't do this this is <laughs> this is really strange i really like the scene where he shuts down the the inherent weirdness of it with when he actually says, oh, yeah. I'm not going to have sex with my mother. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the bit where he walks with Victoria's Secret is like, you have crushless panties for my mother. Um, <laughs> but the I love a film whose cathartic scene is, I know why she hates me. I know why she hates me. I see you as a failure and that's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that idea that everything is so dark. You know, they don't come to appreciate each other in a nice, fluffy, easy way. It's that... The, the happy ending is undercut by this inherent failure, which is what's so glorious about about his worldview. I think. Yeah, mm. yeah. I like that's the thing. It's like all. It, it's because he has this kind of you know very you know like like we talked about with the long takes and the and the following people for everywhere and the kind of bouncy music that begins to infect the later films and mm. you get the sense it's this sort of very conventional comedy style filmmaking. But his worldview is anything but. And his worldview world is something that's cynical and, as you say, undercuts all that. And you're constantly having to kind of second-guess yourself through mm. these films because you think it's lulling you one way. But it's like, no, 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 there's something completely different going on here um, that's actually a lot more edgy and cynical than the film is presenting or the, or, or the way it looks and sounds, mm. which I think is kind of interesting as well. 
The Muse. What did you guys think of that? Yeah, The Muse was interesting. Again, it's another interesting setup. And- yeah, and uh, again, a satire of Hollywood. You know, there's easy targets, obviously, mm. but some of the stuff's really... Nah, like, I love the fact that, you know, winning a humanitarian award means your career's over. Yeah. <laughs> You're about to be fired. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the cameos. Oh, the, the, if this film exists for no other reason, it exists for the Martin Scorsese cameo, right? <laughs> yes. He's thin and he's hungry. He's hungry. <laughs> Do you know what there's a Starbucks around here? Like, I just love it. It's so mm. good. It's really interesting the way he's always working on sci-fi films or, or something kind of low rent. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah his characters are always working on, on yeah, yes. science fiction films. I didn't realise that. Science too. fiction book in Mother, yeah. science fiction film in Modern Romance, and yeah. now this one he's writing a lowbrow comedy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a really interesting point. Oh Well, yeah, <laughs> science fiction or something sort of lowbrow and genre. Oriented. Mm. I don't know. I, I guess I, I guess it's kind of a shorthand from a, a shorthand for an escape from reality. But I don't know. Yeah, right. And I guess it's you know being someone because I think being from Los Angeles is something that runs really deep with Brooks. Like it, he was born and bred mm. there. He went to the you know Beverly Hills or Hollywood High or whatever it is with a lot of other famous kids like Rob Reiner and Richard Dreyfuss. So he's grown up in the business. It's been, and I think that's the kind of stuff they're always encouraged to make. And particularly someone like Brooks, who is famously picky, he's only been in like 20 movies over the last four decades or something, and then, you know, seven of them are his own. And I think, you know, that's the kind of easy way out. That's the stuff that's all, why don't you just do this comedy? Why don't you just do this sci-fi movie? Why don't you just do this? But he does seem obsessed with the, the path not taken because apparently he was offered big. He was offered the lead <laughs> yes. role in big. He mentions big in The Muse and then mentions it again in his next film, Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World, in which he basically, the, the film opens with him talking to Penny Marshall, who directed Big, about Big, but without like, mentioning the fact that he was up for it. And like there's still hard feelings. Yeah, like, like you know he, the he hasn't quite got over it almost. <laughs> Looking for Comedy in the Muslim World was actually the big surprise when I was going through the filmography. I was just like expecting mm. the worst from it. I don't know, for it, it didn't get that bad reviews but i was just i don't know i was really kind of dreading watching it and i I thought it was pretty good i I don't know i i love the idea i think the the idea behind it is fantastic but i was really disappointed by the execution because i felt there was no i mean for the majority of the film i feel like there was there's no insight uh that no research was done you know when we're not actually learning anything about about the Muslim world, you know, the Indians in the film talk like Americans, and the film is predicated on this kind of uncomfortable idea that foreigners don't get comedy, which is a shame because I, I really do feel Brooks is a lot smarter than that. But it's a film that I think was, and this is going to be tough to talk about for anyone who hasn't seen it, but the film's almost saved in the last minute. Um, the idea By that, that the yeah. text again, the text again, but also the, the just the idea that Americans will blunder and ruin things for everybody else and appropriate their culture and be oblivious to it all. You know that that's an idea that kind of it made me feel like there was a deeper point that he was making, but it, it sort of. I don't know, I felt really disappointed that he sort of had this really interesting setup. You know, he, he plays himself. He plays Albert Brooks, the comedian who is sent overseas by the US government to discover what makes Muslims laugh. And we don't really learn anything. And I, I, But I, see, that's I yeah. think it's the same character in real life. I think it's that character. Yeah. It's that Albert Brook completely self-obsessed. He can really like give a fuck that, about what makes other people laugh. Like No, totally. But the world that he's in, I felt like all the characters that surrounded him were false. They were written by this sort of conceited Albert Brooks character rather than this conceited Albert Brooks par- character being in a world of 
real people, if you know what I mean. But uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I think that aspect of it's really self-aware. I think that he casts himself as Albert Brooks, and because he makes mm. so much references to the Albert Brooks that we know, the fact that all the characters in in the in New Delhi are just so they're not very nuanced. They speak all, they all mm. speak American. I, I, just, yeah. I just think I think that's all played at a very self-aware level, and that didn't bother me. But yeah, I don't know. I, okay. I guess I can see how how it could. I mean, I want to because it's his like last film to date. At any rate, I, I want to love it because you know I, I want to end on yeah. on the high. But, and it may um, be his last. Like we may not see another one. Well, um, yeah. Who who knows if he if he wants to make another film or, or not? If but, he, or if they'll let him. But I feel like in the last minute, he just there is satire in there, and, and there is a glimpse of that sharp, cynical comedian. But you that, know. that whole thing of going and like like doing his usual deconstruction of a routine when the Indian public aren't necessarily familiar with the routine that he's deconstructing. Yes. And so it's this arrogant sort of this is what I'm doing. Oh, there no, are great ideas in improv yeah, no thing. Doubt. And it's like, they're all like, what? What is this? This is a shit improv or this is a shit ventriloquist act. Like, I don't... What? Yeah, yeah. The, the premise itself alone is just a really sharp foreign policy parody. Just the yeah. idea that they'd send Albert Brooks, and I mean, there's so many jokes on Albert Brooks's like, not not nece- not necessarily his washed upness, but the fact that he's out of touch with the zeitgeist. And I I I, I think even you even get the the sense that they're sending him and not Mel Brooks. Yeah, he mentions yeah, that. I think it was. Them. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, he's like oh, our last choices. <laughs> the people we went to were working, <laughs> so you're next. I find it so interesting that his first film. He plays this distorted version of Albert Brooks, and then, I mean, how many years later was it? 36, 37 years later, he plays another distorted version of himself. Like I was saying before, he's a creature of his environment, which is Mm. L.A. and the movie industry and what that creates. And, you know, the worst possible version of himself, which, you know, he's been exploring since the Saturday Night Live films and through to this. And even though he's, you know, sort of taken some detours elsewhere... It's obviously a theme that resonates with him. And playing on that kind of first world problems thing as well, like this just he's just continually complaining about stuff in like 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 in India, like the fact that three of them have to get into the back of a cab that he's not yeah. being picked up by a limo, like that's a problem. Yeah, like yeah. there are people on rickshaws out there, you know, and people walking with baskets on their heads. It's like and he's concerned about being lumped in a in a perfectly nice taxi with two other people. And that's sort of a theme that he sort of comes back to back and forth to it's this like kind of this white you know white jewish affluent los angelian completely unaware of his own privilege it's definitely one of the more kind of idiosyncratic careers and uh very um like i said it's a real slow burn each film is a real slow burn but Mm. there's some great stuff uh great stuff to be had there I just realized on my, my notes that I also wrote down a quote from Dave Kerr that I didn't bring up and I should have started it on because he, he, he said something, he summed up Brooks in a really just great way. He said, his overwhelming averageness means that we identify with him easily, yet at the same time his, average, his averageness pushes us away. He's too much like what we fear ourselves to be. And I just thought, <laughs> oh, that's great. Nice. <laughs> nice. I love it. And uh, on that note, Ian, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. This is this is actually my podcast debut. So oh, oh, well, we're I'm, glad to. Uh, I hope we were gentle. Glad to host you. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm very honoured that it was Albert Brooks to, to do that. Well, thanks, thanks so much, and we'll see the rest of you next month. Multi pass. <laughs>